The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, the day after the big sell-off, stocks are trying to hold on to their gains. We briefly went negative earlier on. Meanwhile, Bitcoin is trying to avoid more losses. Which asset class is better positioned to ride out this volatility? Gold on a two-day upstreak, by the way. We'll explore all of that. Plus, Europe's energy crisis. Could it happen here? And what does it mean for energy stocks? That's been the best sector over the past month's second best year to date. And will China be able to control the damage from an eventual Evergrande collapse? And if they can, should you buy those beaten down Chinese stocks right now? Let's begin with the markets before we delve into all of that. Dom Chu is here with the numbers. What a day, Dom. What a day, because we've seen either side of that flat line, right? Positive, negative. Uh, Overall, though, I guess if you're bullish this market, you have to take this as a victory because we did see 600 plus points come off the Dow yesterday. And yes, we did dig briefly negative, but still getting back 129 of those points right now for some of the people who are fearful that the slide could be exacerbated. Maybe at least for now, there's a little bit of abatement to that selling pressure. The S&P 500 up 13 handles, one third of one percent, 4370 the last trade there and 14,780 for the Nasdaq composite up about one half of one percent. So modest gains, but still perhaps a nice respite from what happened yesterday. Two stocks to focus on. First of all, a bullish story coming out for the best performing stock in the S&P 500 today, and that is AutoZone, the auto parts retailer. That stock is up about 4% right now, heavier than average volume. It comes out with better quarterly results, earnings and sales. It did, it did mention, though, some pressures coming on the inflationary side of things that they're keeping an eye on. So watch AutoZone shares up 4%. It's up 39% year to date. And then a stock that's not in the S&P, but it's getting a lot of attention today is Uber. The ride-sharing giant and food delivery giant is up about 12% towards session highs right now. It's still down 12% year-to-date, but it came out and said in a regulatory filing, Kelly, that it sees its key measure of operating profits for this current quarter coming in much better than previously forecasted, and they see bookings improving by the end of this quarter as well. So Uber shares are up 12%. By the way, competitor Lyft is also up in sympathy. Watch those stocks. Uber, AutoZone, your stocks of the day. I'll send things back over to you. Big moves. Dom, thank you very much. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve kicking off its two-day policy meeting today with its latest decision on rates due out tomorrow. Will they announce a taper? What are markets expecting, and how will it affect what's already been a volatile month? Joining me now are Jim Karen, Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and Jeff Krimpleman, Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Great to have you both here. Jim, I'll start with you. What's the market expecting from the Fed this week? Well, first, Kelly, thanks for having me on your show. I think um, there, there are some mixed feelings. Uh, I, I believe that the consensus view is that the Fed will not talk very, very tough on tapering at this point. There's just too much going on, uh, whether it's uh, some of the credit risk conditions coming out of China, whether it's the infrastructure bill or even the debt ceiling. There's just too much room for a policy error. But I think what's important, though, is that the dot plot that does get released will probably reveal a hawkish result 
But then Powell is going to spend some time at the press conference trying to walk that back, most likely, and, and put things in more dovish terms. I just think it's too soon for the Fed to act um, in a very hawkish manner at this point with everything that's going on. It's a, a risk they have to manage, Jim, though, because they have near-term market conditions, which for all the reasons you mentioned, they can sort of take it easy, say better safe than sorry. On the flip side, you have people really upset about what's going on with inflation and supply chain issues. And they think it's all a result of the Fed stimulus. It's a result of the you know trillions that have been spent on the federal side of the equation. So that's causing headaches in D.C. in terms of passing the next spending bills. Could it also create headaches for the Fed where people realize, well, at some point these conditions are too supportive? Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think that's an excellent point because I think there are two parts to this, right? One is tapering. So the reduction of quantitative easing, which effectively is was really there just to address liquidity concerns. I think that at this point, the market is ready for tapering. I don't think QE is necessary. The other is tightening, and that's raising interest rates. And that actually increases the cost of credit. So what Powell tried to discuss at the Jackson Hole Symposium was he wanted to break the linkage between the two. So yes, it's probably time to taper, and that probably gets announced in November, December, and, and enacted in January of 22. But it may, be, it may be not so sequential that you do tapering, and then immediately thereafter, you start to tighten, there might right. be a long lag period between the two. And that's what the dot plot, I think, is going to confuse. And I think that the chair and the vice chair of the Fed are more in the camp to say, let's fix the plumbing, let's reduce the tapering uh, at some point, announce that at some point later this year. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be tightening. And that differentiation, breaking that linkage, is very, very critical at the moment. Jeff, do you think that you know, is it going to play a role here in helping markets navigate this period of, of uncertainty? I mean, I would find it hard to believe that the taper, whether it's announced this month or it happens in, you know, another six weeks or, you know, there it's got to be like the least surprising, most priced in market event now of all time. You know, I know you're a little bit cautious, Jeff, in the near term on equities, but basically bullish over the next 12 months, right? Yeah, no, we, we are bullish over the next 12 months and think that, you know, not a whole lot has really changed on that front. We've got Still strong earnings and economic growth, low interest rates, tight credit spreads, um, and sentiments come in. So there are reasons to be, you know, positive looking out over the next 12 to 15 months. However, risk levels have increased, and the Fed is part of that picture. Clearly, inflation is on their mind. I think we've gotten a little bit of reprieve because of the employment report that was uh, soft and and a, a lot of stuff that is going on right now. And I think they will uh, kind of thread the needle here. But in anticipation of what the Fed may do and the, and the concern about policy risk, the average stock is off 12% right now. So um, what we're telling investors is stay put. This isn't a time to be heroic. You know, you still have a positive fundamental backdrop, but the market is narrowing and there is a growing wall of worry, which includes what is the Fed going to do? What is tax policy going to look like? Right. So if the market's taking you to 65% equities and your normal target's 60%, we pair back to neutral. If you're at 60, um, stay put. If you're under, uh, the average stock is down 12%. Maybe you want to add to your equity exposure a little bit. So there's context to this. Sure. And I want to give people some of your picks. You've got Aptiv, Johnson Controls, Oshkosh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Twilio, and Viva. So again, kind of a wide range of names across what you would say are a lot of different styles that can work value and growth, just kind of depending on the company right now. Jim, I'll give you the final question. It's really more of a comment um, on the level of interest rates. It, it does feel like we're headed to a Japanification kind of outcome where the 10-year yield 
I mean, Japan's tenure, as Rick is always pointing out, barely even trades. And I just wonder where our markets are going. If the Fed does begin to exit the picture, is there a chance at least that our markets get back to normal? I, I think I think it does. I think the I think our markets will get back to normal. And, and effectively, what we also have to understand is that there's been almost zero net issuance of treasuries since the beginning of the second quarter. And for you know for many technical reasons, but is when the debt ceiling gets resolved, which we think is late October, there's going to be an onslaught of net issuance of U.S. treasuries that's coming forward. Mm-hmm. And we also have to worry about the infrastructure bill. How does that get paid for? Is that deficit finances? There going to be more debt? So I think one of the things is that debt and deficit. Is are going to increase in in the U.S. That could push rates higher. And as you pointed out earlier, there is inflation risks that are out there as well. So I don't see this really as the Japanification of of, of U.S. markets. I think that we're in a very technical period right now that's keeping interest rates probably abnormally low and that we could probably get back close to 2% by the end of this year. I hope you're right. But we've been waiting for 2% and waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, We'll see if this week gets us any closer to that. Guys, thank you. We really appreciate it today, Jim Karen and Jeff Krumpelman on these markets. Let's turn now to Bitcoin. It and other major cryptocurrencies weren't immune from yesterday's sell-off, with Bitcoin dropping as much as 10%. Now, all of this, of course, also after SEC Chair Gary Gensler warned last week that crypto is a Wild West asset class rife with fraud. And Coinbase yesterday dropped its plans to offer a 4% yield product after a pretty public spat with the SEC. Joining me now is Grayscale Investments CEO Michael Sunshine. Michael, it's great to have you. Obviously, you guys are still working on this Bitcoin ETF, but you have kind of the major Bitcoin trust product for the time being. I don't know if you want to offer just any general thoughts on how you think over time crypto should be performing as an asset class. Well, it's great to be here, Kelly. I think there's zero question that in investors' minds, crypto can now occupy a slice of their portfolio allocation. And it's not just Bitcoin anymore. Investors have increasingly been diversifying their cryptocurrency holdings. I think that the SEC and regulators have a tough job at the moment. The ecosystem around digital assets is evolving very, very, very quickly. And even just as recently as today, Chairman Gensler actually had some commentary that once again invited industry participants into the SEC to discuss the products and services they're offering and stated that the SEC does, in fact, have the authority to regulate crypto. Right. Which, you know, he seems to be making it very clear that something will be coming in this space. What do you I mean, what did Coinbase do wrong from your point of view? Well, I think Coinbase and companies like Grayscale as well are the types of industry participants that are asked for permission, not for forgiveness types of organizations. We're making use of existing securities regulations to provide products and services around digital currencies. So it would be tough to say exactly what Coinbase did wrong. But unfortunately, I think that, you know, where we are today, there needs to be some more guidance from the SEC. And we really have to move to a place of actual regulation beyond just enforcement actions, which we continue to see. And I guess the distinction that you're making goes back to other platforms, like we were talking about with Kate Rooney yesterday, that offer yield products with higher yields. It's unclear exactly how they're generating those yields, and they're they're not asking for permission, are they? Well, I think it depends on the company and the product or the service, but there is no doubt that crypto as an asset class in investors' minds is here to stay. 
And some of these features like staking, lending, um, earning yield, you know, these are the types of products and services that are becoming increasingly important to investors. Are you disappointed in the growth of stable coins and the attention they're now drawing from regulators, you know, having to figure out whether they are akin to money market mutual funds and so forth? You know, I've heard even those like Caitlin Long, who are, you know, Bitcoin hodlers, if you want to call it that, saying this is unhealthy speculative activity, the kinds of uh, credit creation that Bitcoin was intended to avoid in its sort of hard money ethos. Um, so I'm just curious what your point of view is on a lot of this activity that's been taking place. Well, stable coins have become a fixture on the digital currency ecosystem, uh, given that they do offer the ability to create a stable uh, point within investors' portfolios when they're moving in and out of different digital currencies, rather than relying on the traditional banking system, which has all kinds of time delays and fees associated with getting back to a fiat um, asset, be it U.S. dollars or otherwise. But as is the case for Bitcoin, as is the case for stablecoins, it remains early days. And I know that this industry and the momentum behind it will continue to work with regulators to smooth out any concerns that there may be. So, you know, if we turn back uh, just to what's been going on with Bitcoin and sort of the different av uh, investment avenues into it, would you guys launch a Bitcoin futures ETF if that ends up being the only regulatory path? I wouldn't rule out anything. I think at Grayscale, we've continued to toe a line between providing investors with investment options that we find compelling and that we want to provide unique opportunities and access to with where investors are telling us they want to have that exposure. I think it would be an unfortunate scenario if the SEC were to only approve Bitcoin futures-based ETFs and not really instead allow for a level playing field, which would put both spot or physically backed Bitcoin ETFs in the market at the same time as futures-based ones, and instead let investors make that decision as to whether or not they want one product or the other. But what would your response be if the SEC says, well, there's already a way for people to go long Bitcoin, they just literally buy it. Why do they need an ETF? There is certainly no shortage of evidence that investors want exposure to Bitcoin in the form of a security. Our flagship product, GBTC, has tens of billions of dollars invested in it and is the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. Despite its popularity and its success, though, Kelly, there is still a segment of investors that are waiting for the familiarity and the protection that an ETF wrapper provides. So we feel that this is certainly going to be an important part of the ecosystem that will draw in more capital and will draw in more investors. Final quick question on this. Is it possible that just as you're sort of making the case for a Bitcoin ETF, the ETF itself loses tax advantages because of changes in Washington? That is a very interesting question. And that's a new piece of you know legislation or a potential piece of legislation that just recently gotten, has been floated out there. I think with the rise of ETFs and their popularity and their utilization in investor portfolios, it'd be unfortunate to see any kind of legislation that would uh, dampen the life cycle of ETFs or the growth of that part of the investment universe. It would certainly be a surprising twist in this story, but we can never rule it out. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Michael Sunshine of Grayscale Investments. Coming up, natural gas prices, they're starting to come back down to earth after a parabolic move over the past month or so. We're on pace for our fourth straight session of declines around 2%. Up next, we'll speak with Bank of America's head of global commodities about these moves in metals, oil, nat gas, and what it all means for the transitory inflation debate. Plus, what does China's Evergrande crisis mean for American investors with exposure in China? We will explore that ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange.
on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager. back to the exchange, everybody. Europe's energy crisis is worsening as supply levels hit dangerously low levels ahead of the winter season. Tightening supply is causing prices to spike. It's forcing energy providers to turn to dirtier and more expensive alternatives like coal. Still, Chinese growth concerns are putting some pressure on major commodities this week. Oil is around $70 a barrel. Natural gas sliding more than 4% today. For more on all these moves in commodities and where it's headed from here, I'm joined by Francisco Blanche. He is head of global commodities and derivatives research at Bank of America. Francisco, it's great to have you here. Let's just start with natural gas because it's probably the biggest uh, one in terms of price swings lately. Have we put in the highs for the year? Um, well, it depends on which gas market you're, t- you're looking at. Um, if it's the uh, global gas market, I think the answer is uh, probably not. And if it's the U.S. gas market, I think it depends heavily on what the global gas market does. Uh, we have a very, very tight global market, and uh, it's feeding straight through into U.S. nat gas. Uh, if the winter turns out to be uh, pretty cold, uh, it's going to get messy. Uh, we are, we're going to be running on very tight supplies in Asia and Europe, and that's going to feed straight through into NYMEX prices in the U.S. That's that's our view. You know, if you can translate into what this means for consumers and businesses, you know, we're all looking right. at the headlines in Europe where you have some providers who are refusing new customers, where you have some who, you know, these economics are terrible because there's a cap on bills to households, and yet they're completely exposed to the rising input prices, and some are going under, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what to do in terms of bailouts. How much of that could happen right. here? Well, I think I think uh, in terms of the U.S., it, it's not very likely that we have the same situation. There is a number of buffers that will likely uh, prevent, most likely prevent a run-up in prices like we've seen globally. Uh, remember, Europe is short gas. Uh, the uh, suppliers of gas traditionally have been Britain, uh, the Netherlands, and Norway. And now, uh, now Europe has become very dependent on Russian gas. Um, and there is no liquid natural gas out there because it's all being taken by China. So the Europeans are basically having to shut down factories. We've seen that in the UK um, in terms of fertilizer companies. Uh, there's a pass-through effect already into uh, the meat production business because it's a shortage of CO2, which is uh, which comes directly from natural gas. Um, and, and I think we can see other industries being impacted. And, and of course, then there is the winter. I mean, if we have a cold winter, things are going to get messy. Inventories are just too low. Now, in the US, you don't have the same situation. There's a number of buffers that will prevent prices from getting a lot higher than where they are today. Um, I mean, I think we could see, I mean, in a bad winter, we could see eight $10 per MMBTU, wow. uh, but it's going to be unlikely uh, that we go a lot higher than that. Remember, in Europe, they're paying 25 right? So so it's still uh, meaningfully cheaper uh, than, than what you're seeing in, in Europe and Asia right now, which is about $150 a barrel of oil equivalent, higher than what we saw in the financial crisis back in 08. So extremely high prices. So I, there's so many more questions that I have in terms of whether we are going to face outright shortages. You know, we've seen some sort of startling headlines about, as you mentioned, fertilizer, food supplies and that kind of thing. 
Um, What would you say to those who are rather alarmist about the present situation? And what would you say to those in the U.S. who, if you think we're relatively more uh, protected from this, still how might we expect this uh, to behave headed into kind of the spring of next year? Well, look. I mean, I think um, I think the the, good, the the advantage of the U.S. is that you have you have a very very large um, uh, domestic shale gas business. So, I think if the price is right, we'll see investment coming back into the sector. We'll see more production. In fact, we expect growth of three point uh, three point five billion cubic feet uh, of, of supply in the U.S. next year. The, the issue in the U.S. this year has been that all all the exports to Mexico and all the liquid natural gas demand. Uh, being exported also internationally has tightened up domestic supplies. But but the U.S. historically has been a bit of a gas island. There's a lot of supply. You just need to drill it and get it into the market. Internationally, it's much more complicated than that. And uh, so I, I'm not that worried about U.S. In fact, I think on a relative basis, this situation benefits U.S. and U.S. businesses, as people will see America as a place where, even though gas prices are higher than what they were last year, they're still way, way lower than what they are um, elsewhere. So, so I think the U.S. is in a relatively better position. Now, Europe, I don't know. I think it's a challenge um, where, where, where Europe is. And ultimately, uh, it's all about Russia yeah. opening up the tabs and, and releasing more gas into the continent. Yeah, it's almost like they're, they're the OPEC, you know, just themselves of this, of this vital right. energy source. They are. So I just want maybe to get your thoughts on some of the clean energy commodity plays and that kind of thing. You know, I wrote earlier about Pierre Andoran, who has basically said he's not right. long oil for this phase of the transition, that he thinks this is all right. kind of uh, going to hasten its own demise. And again, this government transition is partly why we're facing these shortages and price spikes right now now. Can you just explain that dynamic from your point of view? How do you see that playing out? And where where do you think uh, commodities are best positioned uh, for investors to go long? Well, I think I think at the moment there's two big stories going on. One is the winter and uh, the winter fears, right? And, and, and clearly gas is going up on the back of that. And potentially we could see oil prices going up too. So, so we do think there's a risk of oil being dragged up higher by natural gas. And maybe we see $100 a barrel this winter if, if gas keeps spiking, just out of substitution. Um, and then, then I think the, the other side of the, of the commodity story is the industrial metals and the bulk commodities. That's a more challenging story. Again, this is connected to the Evergrande uh, fallout in China. Remember, the property sector is almost 30% of GDP in China. So we are worried that um, some of the construction materials, some of the commodities heavily utilized in, in, the, um, in, in the construction sector uh, start taking a hit. And we've seen it already with iron ore uh, in particular, as China has been shutting down some steel mills. And it could happen also in some of the other metals, maybe copper, maybe some of the other uh, metals where China's 50% of the world's market. So so I think commodities right now, I mean, I, I'm more constructive on the energy side. I'm a little more concerned about the industrial metals and hmm. bulks uh, heading into the winter. Which is the opposite of what I think a lot of people would anticipate with the reopening. But if you have now China slowing uh, while we have a global energy crunch, probably the opposite pair trade makes sense. Francisco, thanks for your time today. I hope to check back in Thank soon. You. Francisco Thank Blanche you. joining us from Bank of America. Coming up, a billion-dollar digital freight startup is set to go public via a SPAC merger. What does the deal mean for the future of freight? We will ask the CEO. Plus, J&J is out with some new data on the effectiveness of its COVID-19 booster shots. We will hear from the company's chief scientific officer ahead.
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The rebound from yesterday's big decline in danger of fizzing out once again. The Dow's trying to hang on to a 50-point gain here, about a tenth of a percent higher for the Dow and the S&P right now. The Nasdaq up a little bit more comfortable, third of 1%. Here are some of the individual movers we're watching. Big Lots is on pace for its worst day this month after a downgrade to neutral over at Piper Sandler. The firm's saying notable stimulus benefits from 2021 are rolling off now. That'll impact the discount in low-income retailers. Big shares down 5.5%. DraftKings also lower after proposing a takeover of Entain, an online betting company based in the U.K. Sources telling our David Faber the deal would be worth $20 billion. Faber also reporting that MGM consent would be required for any deal involving Entain's U.S. assets due to their joint partnership. Entain does confirm it has received a proposal from DraftKings to acquire the company. Didn't give any details about the offer, but look at Entain's shares surging 18% Today, even MGM adding nearly 1%, while DraftKings is down about 6%. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. FBI agents and other law enforcement officials are back in the Carlton Nature Reserve searching for Brian Laundrie, the fiancé of Gabby Petito. Officials call it dangerous work for the search crews as they wade through flooded areas infested with alligators and snakes. The head of the United Nations telling world leaders that we face the greatest cascade of crises in our lifetime and that we're moving in the wrong direction. He wants the world to come together to fight the pandemic, climate change and wide ranging inequalities. We face a moment of truth. Now is the time to deliver. Now is the time to restore trust. And now is the time to inspire hope. And I do have hope. The problems we have created are problems we can solve. Humanity has shown that we are capable of great things when we work together. And in Texas, on the border with Mexico, some migrants are being bused to Houston, but thousands of others face deportation. And on the news, flying migrants back to their home countries and a possible new face of migrants headed to the U.S. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you very much. Still ahead, the first test for beleaguered Chinese real estate developer Evergrande. Its debt crisis possibly about two days away. We have the latest in the saga and whether investors should fear contagion risk. And J.P. Morgan's startup shopping spree continues. The details of its latest acquisition are right after this here on The Exchange. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. After yesterday's big sell-off, stocks are sitting in a holding pattern today. You've got the Fed decision on one hand that's coming tomorrow. You've also got the first of two bond interest payment deadlines for China's Evergrande. The street is widely expecting Evergrande to miss that payment. Eunice Yun is in Beijing with the latest on this saga for us. Eunice. 
Thanks, Kelly. Well, Evergrande's chairman is attempting to boost confidence in the company. In a letter to the staff, uh, the chairman for this uh, mid-autumn festival holiday said that Evergrande will, quote, walk out of its darkest moment very soon and resume full-scale construction of its property projects as soon as possible. However, he didn't explain how. SNP uh, said that it doesn't believe a rescue is going to come in the form of direct support from Beijing. The ratings agency said that it only sees Beijing stepping in if there is a, quote, far-reaching contagion causing multiple major developers to fail. So other property developers today attempted to reassure investors that that wasn't going to happen. For example, one mid-sized firm, RNF, the co-founder said that they are injecting $1 billion of their own capital into the company starting Tuesday and that they sold their property management business to rival Country Garden. Others announced share purchases or bond redemptions. So what's next? Well, on Wednesday, uh, we're going to get a sense as to how Chinese investors feel about this whole saga when the country goes back to work after the long holiday. And then on Thursday, uh, the uh, company needs to make an interest payment within 30 days or risk default. Kelly? Uh, Eunice, we appreciate it. We'll check back in uh, in the next couple of days as this uh, saga plays out. We wanted to mention that two of Evergrande's bonds do this Thursday. Uh, that all being the case, as she just reported, will China's government step in or will they resist the optics of having to bail out one of these companies? And if Evergrande isn't too big to fail, what happens next? Let's welcome back Marco Papich. He's chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group and author of the new book, Geopolitical Alpha. And Dewardrick McNeil is managing director at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. It's great to have you both here. Marco, let me just start with you. You know, again, the, the, the Evergrande issue has been out there for such a long time that everybody assumed nothing would be done about it. What do you think is now being done? Well, I think that uh, we should look at the other analogs in China that can provide us with some uh, sense of where the Chinese policymakers are likely to take this. So one of the things that we've heard uh, in China from onshore managers is that investors should really focus on uh, restructuring of uh, businesses such as the H&A Group, which is the beleaguered airline airport business that was recently, uh, whose restructuring plan is now coming to uh, the forefront. First of all, uh, the sort of original founders, <clears throat> private holders of equity are going to be completely wiped out. But the business itself will be restructured uh, there will be a local provincial um, SOEs that will uh, that will take over its airport business. There will be uh, a private company called the Fangda Group that will actually take over its airline business. And that's interesting because that's a business that has nothing to do with airlines. In other words, the Chinese policymakers are uh, splitting off the beleaguered H&A Group and giving it over to SOEs and other mm -hmm. firms to ensure that sort of the uh, businesses that rely on servicing the H&A Group are not impacted negatively. So that's likely to be the scenario for Evergrande as well. And I think Dewardrick gets a great analogy because, you know, Evergrande is a sprawling, has so many different businesses and it's had, you know, different ones that it's sold over the years and some it still retains. But fundamentally, there are people holding wealth management products. There are people who have, you know, had down payments on properties. And I think what Marco is saying is there's a way to keep them relatively whole while having the state sort of... Uh, take this apart and figure it out. But Dewardrick, I guess I wanted to ask you a slightly different question, which is, you know, to kind of quote from Ling Ling Wei's excellent piece in the journal about all this, she says, you know, Xi Jinping's campaign against private enterprise is far more ambitious than meets the eye. He's trying to roll back China's decades-long evolution towards Western-style capitalism and put the country on a different path entirely. So if she's right, and if that's the case, Dewardrick, then 
whether or not Evergrande is sort of dealt with is not the real issue for investors, right? The, the real issue is, you know, do they want exposure to that version of China? Yeah, I think that's that's right, Kelly. Look, I think that we are very clear now that Xi Jinping has a different model in mind. We've talked about that a lot. I think with Evergrande specifically, though, let me say, I think given Xi's focus in that model, his real concern will be on cushioning the impact for retail and other vulnerable investors. And I think the big boys, uh, the big boys and girls will have to take a haircut. Uh, so I think that is that is coming. I don't think it will, will fail uh, outright. It won't be a meltdown, but there, there's some pain coming. But I think absolutely right. The question is, are investors willing to take this ride with Xi Jinping and try and see where China's economy lands under this new sort of common prosperity narrative? I will also say, Kelly, that the debt problem in China has been around for a very long time, but mm -hmm. few leaders have felt strong or secure enough to tackle it. So this tells me that Xi is pretty secure going into the 20th Party Congress, and he is really knocking heads and trying to restructure the economy. An absolutely great point, because you would never take this kind of risk going into an almost unprecedented third term unless you felt as if you were able to have that kind of control over the economy. Marco, I, I, so what would your advice be to investors? You know, we had um, uh, we, Jim Chanos yesterday who pointed out that China has not performed well if you look over the past decade. If China's market, broadly speaking, did not perform well over a decade in which it evolved more towards capitalism, how should we expect it to perform if it's now evolving away from that back towards something uh, more socialist, more communist, as this reporting suggests? Well, you know, in emerging markets, it's very dangerous to equate GDP growth with equity performance. In fact, you know, uh, it's, it's not a good guide at all. Uh, I think it's going to be it's going to continue to be challenging to generate returns in China. At the same time, the people who are likely going to do the best job at it will be onshore managers. So there is still uncorrelated, you know, alpha to be generated on, on in onshore markets. And one thing that I would say, so I don't disagree with anything that DeWardrick is saying, but I would say that it's ironic that what's happening with Evergrande is not actually part of the common prosperity writ large in, in, in the theme. And what I mean by that is that here is China trying to deleverage beautifully. It's trying to deal with its debt problems, which are really a, a, a feature of the last decade, during which it was supposedly more capitalist. Mm -hmm. And yet it still has this debt problem. It's actually dealing with it in a, in a very austere Washington consensus type of a way. Um, it's not dealing with it in a socialist way. And yet that is the greatest risk to China's economy now. It's this... Uh, irony that Chinese policymakers trying to do what's right uh, will actually cause the entire economy to blow up. And that's why they're between a rock and a hard place. And I think that most investors assume that they're going to have to uh, deal with Evergrande in a pretty sanguine way. I agree with that. I think DeWardrick does as well. The problem is so does the market. I mean, if you look at the tenure, it hasn't really rallied. If you look at copper prices, haven't really fallen. Iron has, but oil is holding steady. There's you know, the, the sanguine view is priced in by the markets, and that's what concerns me. Very, very interesting. Uh, I'm glad you made that point. Guys, we have to leave it there. Marco Papich and DeWardrick McNeil, uh, again, maybe a little bit of a warning there as to to what extent China can con uh, allow this to unfold beautifully, if I can borrow Marco's uh, turn of phrase, uh, again, with a lot of stakes for global investors, even who aren't invested in China. Up next, with supply chains under pressure, we'll look at the state of freight and talk to the CEO of digital freight broker Transfix about the company's big plans to gain market share and go public. That's right after this.
we've been talking about supply chain disruption for over a year and a half now with U.S. consumers shifting to goods from services during the pandemic. The demand for imports has caused a major shipping backlog. And now with the holidays fast approaching, freight brokers across the country are working by land, sea and air to replenish inventories. Transfix is one of those brokers. They're focused on trucking, a nearly $800 billion industry here in the U.S., according to the American Trucking Association. Now, to take advantage of trucking's rapid expansion, Transfix announced it's going public via SPAC early next year with the merger valuing the company at more than a billion dollars. Joining me now in a first on CNBC interview is Transfix CEO and President Lily Shen. Lily, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here today. Excited to tell you more about Transfix. Yeah, so I guess let's start with the state of play in trucking more broadly right now. We know, I, I guess to sum it up, it would be described as really bad. Things are, you know, there's a lot of shortages we've been hearing about. We've had retailers warning us there's not going to be product on the shelves uh, kind of for the holiday season. Is it lessening at all? How would you describe things? Look, I mean, the market is tight. And if there is one thing that we know about the freight market, no day is ever the same. You know, I think the disruptions continue. Obviously, we're you know still coming out of COVID. Uh, there are capacity constraints and there's volatility in demand. But I think this is where our technology has really come into play. And in working with customers such as Target, Unilever, Wayfair, um, you know, our technology has really helped to helped our customers to manage through the volatility. Sure. So let's talk for a moment about the SPAC. Why a SPAC at a time when their performance has been pretty underwhelming this year? Uh, you know, are you concerned at all about the experience that other companies around your size have had uh, going public this way? Well, I can't speak to other SPACs, but what I do know is that we have incredible momentum in our business. Every year, we have really continued to grow as a company, bringing on new customers, new carriers, building out the automation, and that's really enabled us to scale. We have an incredible partner in G Squared Ascend One. Uh, they have been in, they've been investors in the company since 2019. Uh, they have invested in companies such as Airbnb, Spotify, Coursera, and they've made a number of investments in the in the freight space as well. So they're incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, and, you know, and share our passion for the opportunity ahead. I mean, and the last thing I'll say is that we all know the supply chain is the backbone of our economy and the importance of digitization is critical. So, so now is the time. And, uh, you know, we've been thinking about uh, being a public company for a while now. And um, given, you know, given our momentum, given the partner, given all that's going on in the space, um, we felt now was the perfect time. Yeah, I mean, again, there's never been more attention on, uh, you know, on these supply chains. So, you know, if you could talk about sort of the playing field, it's pretty fragmented in the trucking space. Is part of your growth plan to consolidate existing players or are you providing the technology that everybody can use? Uh, what's that growth plan look like? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of the automation that we've built on the platform today has really helped aggregate uh, shippers, customers across across the country. We work with some of the largest uh, largest customers in retail, food and beverage, CPG, and manufacturing. And at the same time, we've been able to really pull together an incredibly strong community of carriers on our platform. Ninety three percent of all carriers that work with Transfix continue to come back and want to work with Transfix, and that's really resulted in a high level of access and reliability to shippers. All right. Lily, it's great to have you here today. Congratulations. And uh, again, it'll be 
it'll be helpful to keep checking in on uh, a lot of these concerns, as, especially as the holidays approach. It's good to have you on today. Thanks for having me. Lily Shen with Transfix. Still ahead, J.P. Morgan acquiring another financial startup as the bank works to have lifelong engaged relationships with its customers. This time, it's headed back to school. The details of its latest deal are next. Jamie Dimon declared last year he planned to get more aggressive in seeking takeovers, and he certainly made good on that promise with J.P. Morgan buying another financial startup, this time its college financial planning platform, Frank. CNBC.com's Hugh Sun has the exclusive details on the story, and he joins us now. Hugh, why this deal? Hey, it's good to be with you, Kelly. So the short answer is what they're getting is a software platform that's been pretty effective at serving people, young people who are uh, heading to college and, and need to try to pay for it. So it's got a bunch of tools. Uh, the biggest, I think the main tool is an automated service that helps uh, students apply for federal aid. And so it's got that. It's also got a platform where they can uh, you know, apply for discounted college courses, uh, scholarships, negotiate uh, their federal aid that they've gotten from, you know, and, and other things. So basically, you know, what, what they've got is, uh, you know, uh, this tool that, that has grown a, a pretty good uh, user base. It's got 5 million users. And, uh, you know, JP Morgan wants to get in on that. They want to basically have an affinity program, essentially, that, that you know, as you're, you're uh, thinking about attending college, you've got to chase, uh, you know, if all goes according to plan, you've got to chase bank account. And after that, you know, if you graduate, perhaps you're going to add a credit card, mortgage, and, and auto. So this is their play to, to sort of get people hooked into the chase ecosystem at an early age which may explain why they see so much value, potential lifetime value here for what otherwise would be a smallish size transition, uh, transition uh, transaction. Same for the one that they did with Zagats the other day. Should we expect yeah. bigger moves, uh, things that would really move the needle? Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple buckets of M&A that I, I see them doing. They've had three or four in which they bought M&A, they bought fintech uh, platforms that did specific things, whether it's robo-advising in the UK or, or tax-efficient portfolios. So that's one bucket. This bucket, you know, as I was saying, is more of an affinity play. So infatuation, right? It's almost, it's a media company. They do reviews and zag it. And basically, you know, this is this is their play to, to, to grow, to deepen their ties with diners because diners use credit cards. So in, in this case, obviously it's, you know, it's another affinity play, which is unexpected coming from a bank. Uh, what they have been less successful at, uh, Kelly, is the transform transformational uh, acquisition. You know, you think of Morgan Stanley and their multi-billion dollar deals for E-Trade or, you mm-hmm. know, Eaton Vance. And J.P. Morgan, by the way, you know, bid for Eaton Vance. So it's like they swung for it, but they didn't actually, you know, execute on that. So, you know, I think I think they're, they're still in the hunt. Uh, it's likely that they're still in the hunt for these bigger deals. But in the meantime, they've just had a steady clip of these smaller M&A transactions. Yes. And again, whether that's a big missed opportunity or not probably depends more on their strategic vision for what the company will become in the next few years, as Morgan Stanley's plan has been pretty clear. Hugh, thanks very much. We appreciate it. It's great reporting today, Hugh Sun. You can read more online. And J.P. Morgan is also moving into fintech, while one fintech company is starting to look more like a bank. PayPal is launching new products, including high-yield savings accounts and a direct deposit feature that offers early access to paychecks. PayPal shares are roughly flat today. They've more than tripled, though, since their pandemic low of $85 
dollars. They're at 270 today. And looking at the payment stocks more broadly, MasterCard and Visa are underperformers this year. MasterCard still in the red for 2021, while PayPal and Square are both up about 15 percent. Surprisingly, Amex is the outperformer, shares up 35 percent this year. It's the second best gainer in the Dow. Digging a little bit deeper, Amex shares are up 83 percent from their 52-week low last October. They also pay about a 1 percent dividend, something to consider as many investors look for safer stocks during a market sell-off. Up next, Johnson & Johnson's new COVID booster shot data shows big promise. We'll dig into the numbers and what the company needs to do to gain FDA approval next. Welcome back, everybody. Johnson & Johnson has released the data from its COVID-19 booster shot trials, and that second dose puts its efficacy up there with Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines. Meg Terrell is here with the numbers for us. Meg? Hi, Kelly. So this is the only one-shot vaccine out there for COVID-19. Uh, but J&J looked at what happens when you give a second dose. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the efficacy goes up 94% in the United States. They saw when they give a second dose eight weeks after the first dose, they said they also saw that the tolerability, uh, it remained generally well tolerated, they said. The efficacy was 75% globally, perhaps reflecting um, some of the variants affecting the efficacy there. They also looked at giving a booster shot six months out, which is much more likely what is going to happen, at least potentially here in the United States. And they saw that antibody levels went up nine to 12 times when you space the doses out further versus four to six times uh, when you give that booster at two months. We talked with J&J's chief scientific officer, Dr. Paul Stoffels, just now on how they're thinking about those booster doses. Here's what he said. As we are going to live with this disease for long term here, it's not going to be over in the next year. We need to make sure that the protection is there for long term. So the longer you take the space, the better you have your second boost uh, having impact on, uh, on the antibodies. So the case there, if you're going to get a booster, space the doses out more. But of course, this is a one-shot vaccine still around the world. And J&J also providing an update on the effectiveness with one dose, saying in a real-world study in the U.S., they saw no evidence of reduced effectiveness over time, including when the Delta variant became dominant. However, in some countries where there were uh, variants like Lambda and Gamma, they saw somewhat less protection over time against severe disease. Here's how Stovels explained how they look at the philosophy of providing the single-dose vaccine during a pandemic. Pandemic. If you have to vaccinate very large populations in, in, in countries with millions of people, the simplest way is to see them all once. And that's where the protection once and done, at least for, for protecting for severe disease and death, is, I think, the most important thing at this moment on a large scale in the world. So, Kelly, as so much during this pandemic, it comes down to the question of public health once and done versus perhaps on a personal level, you want that booster to increase your protection. You'll protect more people, of course, with the one dose. Yep, Kelly. and everyone's still trying to figure out if they should mix and match at all or just kind of stick with the, the shots that they got. Meg, we appreciate it. Thank you for the very latest there, our Meg Terrell on the boosters. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 